You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, March 1st, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies hosted a discussion about economic transformation in China with Dr. Paul G. Clifford, author of The China Paradox at the Frontline of Economic Transformation. Jake Bai, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, served as a respondent. Anthony Sage, Daewoo Professor of International Affairs and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation Director, moderated. This one is actually fascinating because it doesn't just tell you about business, but it's a real insider's view from Paul's experiences for 30, 40 years of working on deals in China, uh, not just with foreign organizations, but with many state-owned organizations of China. And it really gives you, I think, an incredibly perceptive insight to the way uh, China has worked, not just at the business level, but as a, as a political economic entity. Uh, Paul might not remember this, but uh, I was actually in SOAS in London University the day Paul got his PhD thesis. And I remember you I was, running down... Was I, was I drinking? When you were, no, you just had run down the stairs, and I think Tim had greeted you at the bottom of the stairs, and uh, you were looking ready for a drink. That was uh, certainly the case. Must have been seven or eight years ago now, I guess. <laughs> but since then, Paul's gone on to have an incredibly illustrious career, uh, engaging in consulting, a range of other activities. His last uh, major work in China was working with Cisco and is now uh, doing a lot of uh, consulting work, but I do genuinely recommend uh, this book to you as an incredibly insightful view into how China operates as an entity, seen through many, many years of experience uh, in business. And then we have, we're very lucky to have as a commentator today, uh, Jia Bai, uh, who's joined us recently, having uh, done a PhD in economics uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of technology. We didn't hold that against her when we recruited <laughs> her here. And she's been looking at a whole range of issues about role of private enterprise in economic development, for example, the kinds of challenges uh, that barriers uh, and barriers that firms face and what kinds of government uh, policies can stimulate that interaction. So uh, we're doing this uh, together, I'd just like you to know, jointly sponsored by the uh, Fairbank Center as a co-host with us for this particular event. It is also being recorded, so uh, please bear that in mind. When we come to the Q&A session, that will mean that we'll bring microphones around uh, for you to answer from. And remember, a question is a question. It ends with a question mark. It doesn't entail a five-minute ramble about whatever's on your mind at any particular moment. So the process uh, for today is that Paul will make his introductory comments, and then Jay uh, will respond to those, and then we'll open it up for a question and dialogue. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Paul Clifford uh, to speak with us this afternoon. Uh, can I sit down and do this? Yeah, unless people would at the back want can to you, Can you? I think, I think I can speak up, and um, it's a lot easier than standing up. I don't have any prop, you see. Um, first of all, I'm overdressed. I apologize, but I was given instructions. Um, I feel bad about that. Um, but I want to thank the Ash Center, uh, Tony and, uh, and Jie, uh, for inviting me today. Uh, it's a really great honor. Um, this is one of the world's greatest institutions, right? No, you have to say it's the best. Actually. We think so. Yeah. Uh, uh, We're modest. 
Yeah, modest, yeah. But it's, it's a great privilege. Um, and, you know, what I would say about the book is that a lot of it's um, what I call micro, you know, bottom-up, because it's about what I've done. It's not a show-and-tell, but it's you know, in a reasonable framework, but a lot of my anecdotes and my, you know, my, my projects in there. Therefore, you know, it, in, in the space of 20 or 30 minutes, it's not really possible to, to give much of that. So I, I apologize if some of the comments are more dry or just drawing some conclusions from them. But I, there, there, is, there are wonderful anecdotes, and some funny, some you know, not so funny. But uh, 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 so I wanted to, you know, to say that. Um, and uh, I put up some points. I'm not going to use PowerPoint beyond that because I've, I've used it all my life, and I think it kills a lot of discussions. And uh, actually, you can hide a lot behind PowerPoint. You know, I'm not going to hide behind. It. I'm just going to, you know, talk. And of course, we have questions, and that's where you find out if I really have anything to say. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but first of all, you know, starting with this, this small list here, um, you know, China's aspirations. Uh, in the book, I um, make a point of looking at, at what came before, because I think it throws into tremendous uh, focus just how amazing and wonderful, really, the, the reforms have been. So I'm not a, you know, I'm. I, you know, some people complain about Chinese pollution and all these other aspects that are not, not happy, including authoritarianism. But um, the, the, the point I'd make is that China has, for several hundred years, been aspiring to find, you know, growth and wealth and, and happiness, in a sense. And, um, you know, during the late 19th century, they imported weapons to, to prop up the, the, the dynasty, and it didn't work, right? And in the first half of the 20th century, uh, the Republican period was flawed because of bad governance by invasion and corruption. And in 19, 1949, you know, I don't have to tell you this, you know more about it. Some audiences don't know, you know who Mao Zedong is, I promise you. But uh, uh, 1949, uh, Mao, Mao Zedong took over, and there was, there was an, a half chance that China might have gone differently. I don't think that was really on the cards, but they not only didn't you know, follow what I would call a more rational development path, they took Soviet planning, right, the centrally planned economy, and then they went on further than that with massive uh, political campaigns, which left China at the end, you know, by 1976 when Mao died, basically uh, with very little wealth creation. There was growth, GDP growth, there was modest growth, but the wealth was sucked up by a sort of heavy industrialization policy, so that the people themselves didn't feel that wealthy and weren't wealthy. Many were fed, but, and they had better health care, and there were lots of good things. Women had been given a better status. Yeah. But the problem was it was uh, not going anywhere. And uh, when, when the Chinese reformers started reforming, they called this the previous period a period of perpetual poverty. And the... the the position I, I take all along in the book, really, is that you know, China is finding its own way. I'm not trying to be prescriptive, tell them what to do. I just don't believe that's what I should be doing. I, I think I, I, I analyze it, I show some views, but I try to take my own personal views out of this situation. So the Chinese aspirations are really, really fantastic. And you know, just as one example, uh, that, what I was just trying to bring up in my memory was uh, I have a pamphlet on my shelf from the Cultural Revolution. It's published in English. This is Why China Has No Inflation. 
<laughs> Remember that one? It was a. It I was, do actually. Yes. Well, you know, there are a lot of reasons, and they have to do with the problem of the Maoist road to development. So when China grasped the reforms, it was a major. You know, this, this unleashed huge uh, human potential, and I, you know, I applaud it. Um, but there are some issues, and we'll come to that. Um, so, what is the China paradox? Um, you know, after Mao, the Communist Party was, believe it or not, um, quite humble. You know, rarely are Communist parties humble, but they were sort of humbled and chastened by the failures. And, uh, and what I, when I talk about the China paradox, it's really a proxy for the Chinese model, right, um, of the last 40 years, whereby the party has embraced a capitalist methods and techniques, uh, uh, levers, um, in return for being able to maintain their total control on power. There was a, it was like a, a, a deal done with society, almost like a social contract. And that, um, that has been hugely successful, but I believe it's a rather fragile construct. And it survived 40 years. And the question we're asking is, you know, how sustainable is this? And I'm using a window, using the Chinese enterprises, foreign and you know Chinese, as a window on the broader social issues around the China paradox. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and a, a lot of our friends and China experts are profoundly disturbed at the moment, discomforted by what they see as China's terrible you know, drift into authoritarianism. Well, it always was, and I don't know. I I never really believed it would. Um, it would. It would uh, emerge. You know, converge with us. As a capitalist, you know, a liberal, uh, liberal economy, uh, uh, politically and economically, I never believed that. But some people have, you know, peaks of optimism and and then troughs of pessimism about China. And um, I, I just want to show you this one. Um, <laughs> this was published in the New York Times in, in 1985. That year, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who is this this person is, uh, Deng Xiaoping, the leader of the reforms, um, was. Uh, with the Time Magazine Man of the Year. He was also in 1978, the year the reform started, also Time Man of the Year. And you, know, you can see what's wrong with that. They, they are lifting up their blinders to import foreign techniques and people like me, you know, <laughs> uh, science and you know, modern business techniques, but they were not giving up their political vision of you know, a strong uh, Leninist state or whatever. So, uh, this, this was part of that optimism, huge optimism that China would somehow become like us in, in you know, a period of time. And now all the experts are extremely, extremely disturbed. Um, uh, so you know, what we're asking, you know, the, the point is that the party all along, even though it's, it's, it's been very much experimental in the reforms, has all along wanted to make socialism work in some way or other. If you know, and to hold power politically, and also to allow state-owned state state sector to dominate over the private sector, and um, that has been the case. It, it's gone in different dimensions, but this is the direction they have been moving. And so we're asking the question: you know, is are the reforms now you know over? Um, when when she says, "Well, you know, we will." My rule, Xin Shidai, will stride into the new era. Uh, does that mean he's drawing a line under the reforms, or would he go on to do more, you know, more things? Okay. Um, so that, that's.
the pre that's the China paradox, this delicate balance between authoritarianism and a sort of economic flourishing um, with a, a great deal of liberalism, but not a market economy. Yeah. Still controlled by the state and the party. So the state sector, what about the state sector? Uh, I'm not going to go into you know, great detail about the unraveling of the st central planning or the dismantling of central planning, but all I would say is that having looked at it very from close up, because it lasted for about five, eight to ten years after uh, the, the reform started, it, it is a totally dysfunctional, unscientific system that that puts barriers um, between normal human re uh, interaction, whether it be in companies or in society as a whole. The, uh, the economic system was a, a draining the, the, the energy out of the economy and the color out of the cheeks of China. You know, obviously, all industry and commerce were nationalized. So when I was there as a student, you know, there, were, there, there weren't little tinkers on the corner. They, they, you know, there, there weren't little sellers of things. There were some collective stores, and then there were state-owned stores. That's all there was. They weren't allowed to exist. They'd been wiped out. So all the, that color of, and that beautiful thing about China has, has come back. Again, that's what I feel positive about in China. So, um, so what about SOEs? And th they were restructured, right? The large ones. The large, and they're still restructuring. They're being merged. Yeah? There were over 100 large or very large SOEs, state-owned enterprises. Now, uh, they're, they're, when, when they first started, they, they, they gave them corporate good governance. They put in a board, board members. They had us in to restructure them, make them into a new type of company, and then they listed them. They were mostly listed on the stock exchange. Um, if, if you think about what was they wanted out of it, what did the government want? What did the party? They wanted other people's money to prop up the state sector. That's what they wanted. Uh, and they wanted a degree of better governance. And the better governance didn't happen, in my mind. A little bit, but not, not in the way, you know, shareholder pressure hasn't worked, independent directors doesn't work. Um, if you, if you, at the time, and even today, if you talk to SOE, state-owned enterprise uh, board directors, what they wanted and what they want is a greater separation from the government and the party. So they weren't looking. That, that's their main goal. They said it in, intense all the time. Get us listed, and we'll have get the government off our back. Didn't happen to much to great extent. Um, so the outcome is that you know the, there's some improved governance, um, but the, the real change is a pie in the sky in terms of governance. And the the government was taken out of. Enterprises. They were put under SASAC, you know, which is an agency which has very few, few little industry knowledge and too few people to really interfere in SOEs. So basically, they were given quite a degree of autonomy. So Zheng Qifeng happened, separation of enterprise from, from, uh, from uh, government. But the separation of party, Dang Qifeng Kai, did not, did not happen. But the, the party played a very, uh, had a very light hand in state-owned companies. And that was good. You know, it was working quite well. And basically, they didn't interfere in day-to-day -day stuff. Um, so today, after you know more than five years of Xi Jinping, um, who is the Chinese uh, 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 um, party general secretary, I should say, um, and president, um, they've rebalanced the economy. They've closed some excess capacity. Um, they, you know, they're cleaning up environmental issues. And they've actually said the main contradiction is between um, the, 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 the wealth is the, is the wealth disparity in China between the poor and the rich. That's a really important statement. I mean, this is the, this is the hangover from that 
development boom. So I, I applaud that. Um, and, uh, but broadly speaking, the biggest concern everybody in the state sector has is the party has reasserted itself. Not this year, or not just after last conference, but in the last five years, the party has been reasserting itself in every large state-owned enterprise. Um, and when I say asserting itself on small things, like the listed company under the state-owned company, interfering in whether they can pay bonuses that will be let, uh, permit them to attract people to their company. And more importantly, on strategic issues. And so I was asked by somebody uh, who was here before um, uh, on the mergers that are going on, these large mergers in shipping and in rolling stock companies. And my view is that many of these are just bureaucratically designed and don't necessarily have great benefits and efficiency. Uh, so the, you know, the, the party is really leaning on the SOEs. And I have one friend, I have one friend, I can't mention who, um, who is using um, the wants to write an article on why you could use the company law to defend them from the party. Well, you know, people might try to use the constitution to defend themselves from the party and they go to jail. So I've, I've been telling, I don't think you should write that article. <laughs> the company law. China has, you know, rule of law, right? So, so the party, you know, it should be autonomous and not be interfered with. But that's, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, so what about the private? Um, oh, so just put it very simply. You know, some of the large SOEs are, will be flat-footed and in the world market and will not be impressive. But there are other SOEs who have some sort of legacy ownership from the government, but really are private. You know, Lenovo is, Qingdao Hire is basically private. But there, there is a legacy of, 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 of state ownership. And those, those companies have um, flourished in the world and in China and I think will continue to. That gives me great confidence that China can, can motor forward because they've broken free. And there's a, I think there's definitely a correlation between uh, the perfor good performance and the freedom they have from party and state interference. I, I've, I've seen it. And most companies in China, state-owned companies, are, are petrified because of the anti-corruption you know, um, uh, campaign as well. So that's the state sector, right? Then I'm not going to talk about foreign um, direct investment, foreign companies, there's no time. And that's another pillar of the Chinese development. The third pillar is of the private sector, which was really started out as these township enterprises, which were highly inefficient, highly polluting, um, and, and totally in the pocket of the, the government, you know, uh, local government. Totally, it was a, a throwback to some very early, um, you know, 19th century sort of uh, structures. Um, but they, they propped up the economy during the restructuring of the SOE sector, um, the state sector. And some of them went on to greatness. Right? Many of them just died off. But many of them went on to greatness. And uh, you, know, you can see Wanxiang, you know, the auto components manufacturing in Hangzhou. I mean, they really are, became great companies. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, and um, the, the, the fun fundamental point about private enterprises, when they reach a certain strategic size, a, a certain scale and in certain highly strategic sectors, they get incorporated back into China Inc. Right? Wanxiang, for instance, was not so strategic and it had a relatively high degree of autonomy in Hangzhou. If you look at the, you know, Huawei, I consulted to them when they were three billion companies. They're now 70 billion, right? Uh, Huawei is a, the, the, you know, like the Cisco of China, right? Um, Huawei um, competes with ZTE, a state, or formerly state sort of company. 
and they compete in the marketplace. They have their own strategies, their own products, their own people, their own, their own secrets. And so people say, yeah, there's, there's, there's a duopoly between those two great companies, and uh, it's a market forces. But in truth, because it's so strategic to China, it all goes back up the layers to some Lingdao Xiaozhu, a leading group of the state or party. So, then, so it's a pretty clever model. They don't interfere with, but at a, at a certain point, if anything goes wrong or they need to be pushed around, they will be pushed around. So uh, the same goes with Alibaba and Tencent, you know, these companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they compete head on, but I think it all leads back to some group. And, and the government, the party, the party are behind thinking about what they want them to be. Particularly Alibaba, it's, it's got hands all over China. And people ask me, you know, should I buy Alibaba stock? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, what, what should I look out for? And I said, well, I'll just watch out for Jack Ma's relationship with the party. That is the political risk that you, no, really. Um, um, and, you know, a bunch of co private companies have, have overextended themselves. They were pretty lousy companies, right? Fosun, um, you know, uh, Ambang, um, uh, Hainan, uh, HNA. They're really lousy companies. And even five years ago, I knew that Hainan, HNA was over leveraged. And I've told them, no, go, no, go, don't go near it, because they, they won't make it. So, um, but again, they're, the, everything's intertwined. And the point about, sorry, we don't want his face up all the time, though he's not a really that bad man. Um, convergence. When I say convergence, I mean, at a certain point, the, the, the discussion between private and, and state-owned is sort of meaningless, right? That, that um, the, the, the private companies get incorporated back into China Inc., right? And state-owned companies are trying to break free. Some break free. So the distinction is about those which are more autonomous and those who are less autonomous. And uh, w when people say, I'm, you know, can I do some due diligence on a company, you know, we, we look at it, but we, we look at their, their history, where they've come from, and then what they are. It's like a taxonomy of Chinese enterprises, you know, trying to categorize them. The, the SOE private thing is slightly meaningless, uh, becoming increasingly meaningless in this world. That's my, my view. Um, finally, nearly, nearly there. Um, Business models of Chinese firms. I'm not going to go into it. I write a lot about different business models. But there is, there is a catch-up model, you know, which was a, a high-speed rail. They, they borrowed, they stole, and, and then improved, caught up. Um, generation 3 nuclear technology. You know, Westinghouse gave them all those drawings. They did that legitimately, and they improved it, and they've developed it, you know, smaller modularized um, power stations. So you know, China has done a very good job. And then acquiring um, non-performing assets, China's done a really good job. I mean, Lenovo, who is much, much smaller than, than IBM PC business, bought that business and incorporated it into China and made it into a, a very successful business. Under IBM, it had never made any money over the years. You average out all the years. They'd never make any The money was all in the chip and the hard drive and the software, right? And then finally, the China Inc., where the Chinese government and other groups go to Africa and the Caribbean, or in the Belt and Road Initiative, the government, the banks like China Development Bank, large construction companies, they all, they all go together as a group, all sponsored by the government. I don't like that model, but I won't say that it's not going to succeed. I think it will succeed, and the Belt and Road is, you know, th this was the prototype for the Belt and Road. China's been experimenting, and 
I think they do understand that they are meeting opposition in the local countries and will change their, their view, their approach a little bit to have some competitive bidding. Okay. So you know, why, why am I optimistic? Obviously, China has a very, very large domestic market. Only about 51% of the country is now is, 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 uh, in living in cities. And their target is to get to, you know, within a certain period, to 70%. That means that China has a huge space to prototype products and services and new models and to, um, and, and to, you know, to expand f for a long period of time uh, in volume too, gain scale. So this is, China is not really an export-oriented export country, although it exports a lot. You may think that's contradictory, but it's true. I mean. um, and it has a very industrious population, which stresses education. And of course, the energy of these, these great firms I mentioned, not the bad ones, but the good ones, are really impressive, I have to say. Um, so why, why am I pessimistic? What, you know, what are concerns do I have? Um, the rule of law is absolutely fundamental to development, and it, it really is not good, despite you know, uh, some tweaking and you know, the existence of, of laws. There's the rule of law, but not. Uh, you know, when, when, when GM um, went to court because the Chinese had uh, stolen one of their Daewoo models, um, um, they, they proved that the Chinese had used the d original Daewoo model to, to, um, to test, do crash tests. They didn't use their own one, and still the court didn't find for GM. So, you know, it's a little bit futile at times. Um, uh, so, you know... The, the problem is not so much about the economy, it's about China's governance, unreformed governance. So, you know, the assertive party, the clampdown on civil society, and the absolute leadership role to be written into the state constitution, which was always the case anyway. Call a spade a spade, right? Um, um, and I think this all has a huge impact on China's connectivity to global trends and ideas. And in a way, the political governance seems incompatible with the China's role of, you know, to, of participating in the knowledge economy. So, finally... Um, you know, the question is, does she and the party consider that the main goals of the reforms have essentially been achieved uh, and that all that needs to be done is tweak things? Um, so, uh, you know, is she declaring victory in the reforms? Uh, do you think they've succeeded in making socialism work? You know, um, um, and uh, if you think about the Chinese population, they're by and large very, very happy with... Uh, with Xi Jinping for both his strident nationalism uh, and also his anti-corruption. But if you talk to Chinese economists, uh, academics, SOE board directors, business people, entrepreneurs, private equity fund managers, you will find a deep concern at what's going on in China and as they see, what they see as a dangerous hubris of Xi Jinping okay? uh, and the heightened authoritarianism. So finally, you know, it's possible that Xi Jinping is a closet reformist, right? Is it possible? It's possible. And we live in hope. But I could also say that pigs can fly, right? Um, uh, uh, so if that option isn't open, th there are only two options. One is that Xi Jinping succeeds, and he draws a line under the reforms and drags China back to some form of socialism, which combines Confucianism with Liu Xiaoqi-style communism. He was the person Mao got out of the way, who was a very much a process man, a control man. Um, and <coughs> and, um, and you know, the, the, the political system enhanced in a way that has never been 
able to through the Internet of Things, mass, you know, a big data crunching, crunching and, and artificial intelligence. Put that together, and you have one of the most you know, uh, controlling states in the world in world's history. However, it doesn't bode well for the reforms. It would lead, you know, it would be a backtracking. Um, so that that would be bad. The other option is also not particularly good because if he fails for whatever reason, an outside blow or an, a domestic issue, and he, he will be out of his job. Knives will be out because he has so much hubris and is broken free from his, his, his collective leadership. So I think he's playing a very risky game. But um, you know, I'm not pessimistic that China will, I think China will grow and continue to grow, but I think it will be held back by the, the lack of any political reform. Thank you. I think it's interesting what <coughs> about The Economist, because it is interesting. When you read the kind of IR security people in China, they're very bullish about China's future. You know, America's on the decline. Yeah. We're taking off. You know, this is China's age. And then I read the economists, yeah. the Chinese economists, and you think, well, if they're right, how can China become so bullish and really take over? Because their concerns really point to serious challenges within the economy mm. along the way you're talking about. And if they don't resolve them, it's hard to project that power externally. And then I thought another interesting thing, David Dollar, who used to be head of the yep, World Bank, great guy. has also written on this question that I think you're pointing to about when do the institutions help development and when do they constrain? Exactly. And, and what David has argued is that for a country like Vietnam and China, its institutional structure was very good for bringing in FDI. And it was very good in that takeoff phase of development. But then you hit the problem that what it needs for the institutions for the next phase of development incorporate what you talk about as being rule of law, mm. but ones which also can help uh, competition, flexibility, mm. and accountability. Exactly. And that's, I think, where the challenge sort of comes for, you know, for the paradox, if you like, sort of moving forward. So I think those are really interesting questions mm. to think about. But Jay, would you like to make some comments yeah. before we open up? Oh, yeah, I think my comments are exactly along these lines. I don't know how representative I am to the typical Chinese economist, but I'm happy. I'll leave the audience to, to, to judge, and I'm happy to share my views on, on exactly along these lines. So you Should I start? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're on. You're on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me stand up. <laughs> thanks for, um, first, thanks for Tony and Ash Center for inviting me and not holding my education background against me. Um, first of all, I want to thank Paul for writing this book. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount from reading this book. Um, I feel reading this book feels like you're listening to someone who has witnessed the whole, the entire Chinese reform era and who genuinely want to share his experiences and knowledge with the readers and who has sincere concerns and hopes for this country. Um, so, you know, I, I was born in the 80s and I grew up during the reform era where a lot of things happened. Clearly, I didn't understand any of those until much later. Sometimes I feel we only understand something when we step out of it a little bit, when you see it from a distance. And also, you know, that allows you to see the whole, whole thing. But then you couldn't step too far away from it because then otherwise you become very detached and you couldn't see it deeply from inside. 
I think what this book offers exactly is that kind of balanced and deep, close look at the entire transform economic transformation of China during the past and present. So um, there are a lot I can discuss during. Uh, you must. Very, very little I can discuss during the ten minutes. Ask me some tough ones. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to. I think I will. I will try to carry on the theory that Powell sets out in the book, which is a very the balanced and you know close, um, deep discussions about about Chinese economy. Um, I will focus my discussion on one particular angle, mm. which is about the role of the state in the economy, mm. Mm. which I think lies at the heart of the China paradox, for understanding the China paradox. Yeah. So the question is, what should be the role of the government in intervening and facilitating economic growth? So that's, that's a very big question. It's a very old question as well. In, in fact, it's one of the most heated debates in the history of economics, starting from the 30s between Keynes and Hayek. Mm. Right? So, so the, the visible hand, the government, and the invisible hand, the market, which one is the, should be the more efficient an effective coordinator, engineer of the economic growth. So I think until today, we don't, we don't have a firm answer. We can mm. debate about that. But um, if you think about the, the world with the big push, you know, that's something that we teach in international development. That's something we teach our students all the time. So the idea, the central to the big push, mm. is that there are sectors with you know, strategic interactions, and that will generate complementarities. So, so then proponents of the visible hand use that as an argument for government intervention because now the central planner, the government, they can be the coordinator of economic activities. By investing in industry A, I could generate the synergy and spillovers to then spur up development of industry B and C and so on. You can create this virtuous cycle. So that's the one side of the argument for the visible hand. But then of course we know that bureaucrats are limited, right? They don't have the right economic incentives to respond to market demand forces. And, there, and also, when you think about industrial policies, that could potentially open up the way for corruption. So then, to what extent should we exercise this visible hand? You know, I think the typical economists, most econo economists, including me, we believe that the most efficient mechanism for resource allocation is the market mechanism. But we also acknowledge that there are many cases where the market could fail because of spillovers, because of externalities, and you know, information frictions. So there are areas where government could step in and play more, a more active and helpful role. Mm -hmm. So it's not. So I think I think at the end of, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a simple answer, you know, black or white. But then there are good or bad answers. I think the good answers are exactly the kind of approach that Paul lies out in the book, which is you have to understand seriously consider consider both the pros and cons, and seriously rigorously using evidence. It could be case studies or personal experiences or quantitative evidence to seriously evaluate what has been right, what has been wrong, and how should we you know, evaluate in light of the new arising barriers and constraints, how should we restructure policies and how should we test our policies and refine our policies in the new era. So I think that's what, um, you know, that's what, what good economists could contribute to this debate by bringing those evidence in terms of structuring policies. Um, looking at China's past uh, development history, I think many Chinese economists, we would agree that the engine of the economic growth during, for, for the past few decades is the, is the private sector. They are the key engines of the growth that drive the economic growth. But then on the other hand, we also know that no, firms don't operate in a vacuum. Right? There are inherently institutional environments, you know, that it could, could be good or bad, that shape the environment that firms operate in. So then there are 
aspect where the Chinese government has done good, you know, in terms of facilitating industrial industrial growth and firm firm performance. For example, in the, the case of Hire, I think one great example where the Qingdao government and Hire they have a very healthy relationship where the government doesn't interfere too much, meddling with the firm's businesses, but then create the basic infrastructure that's needed for nurture private enterprise growth. So there are places where the government has done well in, term in terms of facilitating private sector growth. And there are also areas where it is exactly the lack of government intervention that creates problems. For example, lack of brand protection, lack of quality regulations. So those are the areas we would hope the government could play a stronger role in creating that kind of market stable market environment, legal framework, so that you can in in inject confidence into the private sectors and invite them to come in and compete and innovate and thrive. Right? Of course, there are also areas where political factors have been have been acting as a constraint that holds back economic, economic growth. And those are the areas, so for example, corruption, local protectionism, we can name a lot. Those are the areas where we hope the Chinese government could recognize and also think about solutions, how we could address those problems and test our solutions using rigorous, um, rigorous methods. Yeah, so I think. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Well, <coughs> As one of those European socialists that the NRA was denouncing recently, who've come here to take away all your individual rights, uh, I don't see necessarily a problem uh, with the state engagement in the economy. I think there's two yeah, yeah. things that I think are distinctive with China that make it different from that engagement from, say, what worked in Japan, what worked in Korea, and what has worked in Taiwan, is with that a lot of that state engagement and a lot of that state preferential funding through the banks was ultimately geared to get those industries uh, available to compete in international markets. I'm not convinced that that is what China is doing with its support and its kind of state guidance. The second thing that strikes me which is different about the Chinese case, you talked about the government. What Paul is talking about is the party. And that is something that, that makes it quite distinctive in the sense that mm. that is of that division between party and state. And what does it really mean in the fact that it's really the party driving a lot of this rather than government and state? And that seems to me that that makes it different from the other successful uh, East Asian developmental experiences. But let's um, open up. Could I, could, I, could I just? Wanna, add, yeah, sure. If you want to reply immediately. No, sure. no. Could I just okay. uh, um, comment on that? Um, I think different parts of China have very different types of governance well, in terms of the government. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of time in Fujian, Zhejiang, uh, and um, and Guangdong last year, working with small and medium-sized enterprises. And you know, I went. I was quite surprised at how impressive uh, things are turning out to be. They're suffering very hard from high, from, from high wages and you know, n a need to find you know, new things to do, you know, more, you know, more added value. But one thing, I, in every case, I ask them, you know, how is the government with you to, to, compared to 10 or 15 years ago? And they said, much, much better. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, do, do they come asking for bribes? That almost never happens anymore. They're off our back. And you know, even about... Eight years ago, I was at the um, uh, World Economic Forum in, in Beijing uh, giving a talk. On, and I got to have a really nice chat with the deputy governor of Zhejiang. 
And listening to him, it could have been a mayor in, or governor in, in, in America. It was totally free market oriented. And it, today, if you look at the way the Northeast is you know, looking, you know, the Northeast of Manchuria, that area up there, I mean, it isn't, so, isn't the same. And certainly, it varies very greatly. And you know, I think great progress has happened. But one of the things that we're, we're dismayed about is the tone of Xi Jinping in his three-hour, 18-minute speech. Um, he, 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 I mean, he said, I, I didn't have time to put all this, to tell you all this, but the 19th uh, Party Congress, he said, we encourage, support, and guide the development of the non-public sector, which is the key word there, guide. And you, before they've used the word macroeconomic guidance, which I think is like my mother saying, I'm only helping, dear. You know, <laughs> you know? So that, is, that isn't good enough, but that vice governor in Zhejiang got it completely right. And if you go to Ningbo, Ningbo is a really well, interesting, quite well-run place, even though they've had some problems with farmers overextending themselves. But uh, yeah, anyway, that, that, that I just wanted to you know, make that um, comment about the... Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's the thing we often lose sight of, is that China is incredibly complex. And uh, with a lot Still of... Still had engineers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And as you know, Ningbo in the 20s in Shanghai used to be a curse word because it was Ningbo <laughs> workers who were brought in uh, to break the strikes in the foreign-owned really? factories. Yeah, so Ningbo used to be a, a curse word in Shanghai. It lingers on still a little bit uh, yeah. in Shanghai today. Anyway, um, we have, I think, microphones, so please, uh, uh, yes, a, and just tell us briefly who you are when you ask your question. I have Bill Overholt from the Asia Center. Um, <coughs> A lot of Western commentary focuses on the slow reform of the state enterprises, but the and tends to overlook what the statistics say is tremendous success in moving industry up market uh, out of the old sectors and into higher value added sectors. Um, what is the source of that success? Well, I could say foreign management consultants, couldn't I? I could say that, but I'm not <laughs> going to say it. Um, <laughs> um, one thing I would say is that, you know, you had that picture of Deng Xiaoping, you know, thinking about the future and thinking of New York. Chinese are very open to, to learning. I mean, you go to any city in China, they want to outsource their transportation to foreign companies. They're quite happy to do it. You know, um, th they're not against all sorts of things which you would think would be, you know, contrary to, to their interests. So I, I think it's, it's a very, uh, the, w the way the Chinese have uh, absorbed um, foreign ideas on governance, on, on comp company strategy, all those things, um, they, they struggle with, them, with their history, really, their legacy. So the legacy is a massive bloated workforce, right? <laughs> um, and you've got the party secretary saying, stability, jobs, and you've got the CEO saying, we want to be a new company. So how do you resolve that? Well, the way the CEO in one case resolved it was, was saying, if we don't have a strategic plan that is focused and where we know who the customer is and we have a, a, a service or a product that will fit, uh, blah, 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 and people who can deliver it, all these strategic issues, um, and maybe foreign partner, uh, we, we will not be attractive to, this, to the shareholders in Hong Kong when you go for a listing. 
got that one the day, because if you don't have a listing, you don't have any money, and there's no company left, right? <laughs> um, but I, I think, um, I think there they has been great progress in the companies. Uh, I think governance you know, lacks something. I, that, that was always a bit of a pie in the sky. But um, I think, I think they, many of them have reshaped their companies. But the trouble is they were very re reluctant to give up businesses. You know? <laughs> they would say, let's focus on everything. You know? <laughs> and so you're, you're talking to them, and they have this shipping line, which is totally irrelevant. They're doing ground, ground logistics. And you say, get rid of it. And they say, we can't, because so-and-so you know, established it, and he loves his little shipping line. You know? <laughs> so th I, think, I think that um, we, we should not underestimate SOE progress. Um, I think only 17% of the population of the workforce works mm -hmm. in. The, so it's 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 not very you know broad, but it, it's in strategic places, and I just think you can't generalize. I mean, you, you talk about China Mobile and Unicom. You talk about those companies. They were set up since the reforms. Uh, you know, China Mobile, but you know it's awful. It's just a, it's just like a, re a repetition of old state-owned companies. China Mobile. What is it? It's a series of provincial China mobiles who don't talk to each other, and they hire consultants just for that little local branch. And they're, they're, they're trying to develop ways of you know, winning customers, stopping churn, all the things that you do on the mobile phones. But they're doing it, you know, and the, the central marketing uh, sales um, marketing function is very, very weak. So they just reproduced another state-owned company when they could have done something new. Um, but other ones, you know, are, are really quite impressive, and they're open-minded. They, 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 they allow employees to send emails to the CEO. I mean, they, and they're proud of it. They say, "We're learning from you," you know, Paul. You know, we're learning from you. We, we're going to allow employees to you know, have a say. But it's true. It's not not all gloom, you know. So, uh, um, I, I, I can see why they are not completely out to lunch. They're, they will survive. Many of them. All I think is that they will be rather. Um, less than they will be rather flat-footed in the world market. Mem you remember Sinoc um, and, and Unical, you know, Sinoc, uh, a Chinese company, went to buy Unical, American oil company, and they were sitting in New York, and you know, I think it was Ji called up and said, "You can't do the deal," and they felt, "Oh God, you know, we've been negotiating this, and it probably was a good deal, but the government got, you know, got, got cold feet and just called them and said, "Don't do it." So, yeah. Anyway. Do you think that's going to play into the big? You know, thing of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative, because that clearly mm -hmm. is going to have very substantial state enterprise engagement. Right. If you're saying many of these are flat-footed. Uh, well, you know, the, the first thing is, the, you know, the China International Contractors Association. Do you know that association? It's a huge organization. You have to join it if you want to be mm -hmm. an international contractor. And that, and the government through that association, sort of controls all these companies uh, to some extent, and then the party does too. And I think that the, 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 there are private companies in that group too, mm -hmm. plenty of private companies, and they will go out you know, in lockstep, as they say in America, lockstep with, um, with the government, China Development Bank, Exim Bank, and then people like on the infrastructure, and eventually the manufacturers who are going to build car plants in South Africa or whatever. So or Kenya, or whatever. So um, I think you know, th that will give great energy to the, to, to the role of government. I mean, the whole Belt and Road Initiative is a, a government policy initiative, right? And uh, I all along thought it was, it, it was 
you know, absolutely had legs. Many people derided it because it, it was launched in a very propagandistic way in the last year and a half. But I, I think it, it absolutely will um, uh, succeed. And the other thing is that there is room for foreign companies to participate in that. Uh, Britain is desperately <laughs> trying to participate. There will be crumbs off the table, but there will be substantial crumbs, really. Um, and China's happy because that will help beef them up and also d diffuse the idea that it's all China. You know? so, and I've, I've seen, you know, in the book I document a whole uh, piece of, on, on the Africa experience and the Caribbean, Grenada, you know, where China famously built a, a, a cricket stadium after a hurricane um, and then lured Grenada from Taiwan and got them to recognize uh, Peking, yeah, Beijing. So... Um, uh, there, and I really think the public policy and government policy is there to stay, but I think in many industrial and technology areas, it's been pushed down to the corporate level, away from research institutes, uh, to some extent. When China first did its uh, little handset, the first generation handset, that was completely and utterly fostered and nurtured by the government. They gave them money, they had five or six companies, who were going to be the, the kings of this? And within within two of no, within three years, um, Jiang Zemin got on the phone with a Chinese phone. This is the first Chinese phone, and they had two percent, three percent, and they went up to sixty percent of the whole market until the, the Koreans pushed them back. The smartphone era has been completely different. There's Xiaomi and there's Huawei and many other players who've done it themselves, essentially with their own R&D or, or buying it or stealing wherever they get it. Um, and it hasn't been the government. So, you know, I think that the hand of government on some consumer products and things is much less. Um, but on these strategic things, like uh, thorium salt and re nuclear reactors, that, that will be the government. Nobody else is going to do it. Yeah. But I think there's something just to see that the government finds other ways to make sure it has some control over the sectors. I mean, particularly in a lot of the tech areas where we were talking earlier, and I said, in a way government outsourced its development and now it's making sure yeah. it has, and as you said, if you want to know about Alibaba, you want to know about Jack Ma's relationship with the party. But Luis, you take some other questions. So yeah, go, go, go. Here. Yes, Jen Jun. A gentleman here and then one back here. Uh, you talked yes, about so you uh, I'm James Gao, a uh, visiting scholar at H, H Center. Uh, you talked about the China paradox. Uh, you also talked about uh, the business models. Yeah. Uh, well, I was thinking about this. Uh, what's uh, the relationship between uh, the China paradox and the business models might be, as you know it? Mm, mm. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, the China paradox was came up in my mind because friends and relatives were saying, how can China be a tough Leninist sort of uh, communist country, but also care about the people. And the reason was that by caring about the people, they, went, they, they, they buy time to stay in power, right? So, uh, so the, that, that is the definition of the paradox. I, I'm not sure that the paradox really refers to that. Um, I think what I was saying about um, uh, the companies is that the distinction between private and, and state-owned is not so relevant in who's going out. It's more who has detached themselves from the, the party. And, you know, I think that the relationship to the paradox is that 
I believe that, for instance, under Jurong Ji, let alone Zhao Ziyang, but that was a bit too early. Um, <laughs> under Jurong Ji, who was a premier uh, in the early period, there really was an attempt to take the part, push the party back to the extent that it would, you know, worry about jobs and ethics and, you know, um, and, you know, we used to, in some state-owned companies, they used to just, um, you know, during the three represents, some would have hold meetings to pull out people who were corrupt, real, real meetings. And some of them, they just had to put a banner up and they had two seconds, they photographed everybody in front of the banner and sent it up to the party, it's done, you know. So, um, so the, the, my view is that the, the, uh, the part, the, 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 there has, there was a light hand of the party and that was essential to the China paradox. Because if you, if, if the part, if the party and state, you know, interfere too much, the economy would never have would never have thrived in that way, and I think what we're seeing now is, a, is a, you know, the backtracking on that. So to that extent, you could say the China paradox and that de that del delicate mechanism, that balance, might be under threat. Might be. I'm, I'm not saying it's the end, but so the, the, the China paradox is really about the, the the party, you know, having to just be a little bit more humble. And, and do you think the party today is humble? I, I, you know, I think they're you know, stri stridently, co you know, overconfident actually. Uh, or you might say their need for control reveals a, a, sort of a, a, a fear and a weakness. You could say that too, as you said. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a relationship to, to the paradox, but not a, no, not, not a very direct one. Nice question. Thank you, uh, Steve Conlon. I'm a mid-career student here at the Kennedy School. C could you say a little bit about uh, the state of the, the Chinese financial sector, how well is it doing in terms of performing the types of functions we would expect a financial sector to perform in a, in a market economy? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did work in banking early, but, um, um, well, first of all, you know, you may have noticed the Chinese are opening up finance a little bit more recently. Well, there's no, there's no coincidence that the Chinese, the Chinese financial sector is, has a number of very large banks who are very strong and can, you know, and get propped up by the government. So, um, you, know, you know, foreign foreign players h hardly exist in 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 day-to-day -day banking, um, and uh, they they can't make any money. We used to make money from trade finance, you know, credit and things like that, but um, n not a you know, not a big role for foreign banks. So, um, the the the. the the, big, the biggest failure still is that the banks do not serve the people they need should be serving. So some of the private companies I know still lack foreign, uh, still lack um, uh, funding, uh, which from banks. Uh, meanwhile, uh, large state-owned enterprises can get as much as they want. And interestingly enough, back in the eighty, I mean, a long time ago. Um, the more the, the weaker the company was, the lower the interest rate. <laughs> to think about that, uh, you know, total the opposite of you know the way you take, take risk. Um, but many companies I've met, they, they 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 wanted large chunks of money and couldn't get it, so they they, they feel you know starved 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 of of, of money. Um, uh, but the the there there are private banks you know, who who again. You know, held out the promise of supporting pri private sector, for instance, 
but they ended up really doing a lot of personal banking for wealthy Chinese. I mean, in my mind, that's what they make their money on. So the banking system is, you know, very, it's, it's, it's lending to the wrong, you know, lending to the wrong people, um, uh, maybe. It's not lending to the, the, you know, the, the, the right types of people, and it's, it's still highly guided by, you know, by the state and the, and and um, it's the, the the state. I mean, people are very very anxious about the state of Chinese corporate debt, Chinese uh, bank non-performing loans, but China has well, not endless, but a lot of possibility to constantly bail out their banks, and they will do. So it it is a mess. But I I just don't think that it's about to collapse and. Really, the, I go back to the issue of you know the, the, the way they're, they're fumbling their their political system. You know the succession crisis, Boshi Lai, and now you know the, 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 there are many more issues there. And I I, I think people uh, many people overestimate. You know I'm a sort of Andy Rothman fan. You know um, I, I think that uh, people overestimate um, the the problem of the Chinese economy because they use the metrics that belong to a capitalist economy, and China is not a capitalist economy. No way, not a market economy. It has market levers and tools, and there's a lot of private enterprise, of course. But you know, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the government, always. So, um, <laughs> I think it's also related with the debt issue, which, which you basically touched on. That the domestic, the debt is domestic. Oh, absolutely. And, and so there's different ways they can right. resolve that. Yes, so and so. Yeah, so in terms of credit constraint, I think for the truth is that for a long time, economists, we don't understand how, how serious credit constraint is for the small, medium firms in China, because all of the firm service only cover SOEs and above-scale firms. Or if you look at the customs data, that's only when you are large enough to export, then you appear on mm -hmm. the customs data. We know very little about how, how struggling the small SMEs are. Until recently, I think there was a huge survey initiative at Peking University where they start to reach out to this unknown, you know, uh, various uh, SMEs, and they're facing a lot of difficulties. Right. So I think the challenge is that maybe some of them are inefficient, and then in which case we shouldn't, you know, facilitate, you know, they, ha they don't have to survive, but then you want to identify the good ones and then be able to provide them with the credit so that they can, you know, they can scale up. Yeah. And, and yeah. Because the shadow, you know, you've heard about the shadow, shadow banking, and um, I'm not sure exactly the percentage, but uh, maybe 20% of these wealth management products, which are really dubious, um, you know, constructs to get money out of investors. But the rest of it is just lending at fairly high rates to filling a gap that the, the banks don't fill. Yeah. And um, what, the, what the Chinese have been doing is trying to um, sort of like Gui um, Fanghua, you know, um, standardize yeah. the, these, these non-official non lenders into sort of... In, in, into um, more regular banks. And the other thing is that um, uh, China, I think Pakistan has an SME bank. Many countries do have an SME. China was working very, very hard to, and I was trying to get that done. Because um, I was working, I, had a, I was managing our relationship with China Development Bank. And China Development Bank was doing a lot of microloans and things like that, which it didn't know how to do, by the way, but it was told to do it. Um, um, and so, uh, they, they, but they couldn't agree. The People's Bank of China and the Bank of China and other people and other financial uh, regulators uh, just couldn't agree on how to do it. And it hasn't been done to this day, is that right? But it's something that's needed, you know, a, a government-led bank that would supply funds to, 
to small companies that need it. I mean, that's. I think information friction is a big problem in light of the, the fraud, because how, how should I, I don't, so here, you know, you can keep track of people's credit history or record, but in China, you want to screen out the, the you know, the, the, the good entrepreneurs, that, that's hard. But with more information coming available, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. But microcredit experience is that in microcredit, or in China, as else in the world, elsewhere in the world, almost nobody defaults. Yeah, but microcredit yeah. we know is also not super helpful until no, the it's 90 too small. helps. It's too small. It yeah. doesn't help the no. vast majority of no. the borrowers. No. But you yeah. have to find the, yeah. the, the top. Yeah. 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 Well done. There's well, one, two, and then three. Does it? Yes. One here in the middle. Yeah. And then great. two. Great question. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mei Jian. I'm studying comparative religion. It's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, my question might be a little bit out of check, but uh, like right now, Xi Jinping's like very possible will kind of run for another five years or even longer. Mm -hmm. And newspaper is saying there's kind of a faith on him, you know, kind of religion and stuff. But my question is, um, um, big round face. <laughs> so, so my question is, um, um, kind of want to ask about the impact of you know, of you know his maybe possibility of running for for longer and. Um, that impact of in economy because a lot of capital might be you know care a lot about regulation and laws in China and I I I don't know if some people some investors will kind of lose some confidence mm. uh, in that um, yeah thank you oh, okay um, you know my optimism is that. That the Chinese economy has reached a sort of maturity of you know, enterprises who know how to do it, and etc. That it can trundle along without, you know, without t even if the government is looking a little bit, you know, out of it or poorly matched. You know, so. Um, but I think that the people who are investing very long term, 30 years, um, always consider political risk, right? And I think what what we know is if we'd had this conversation before Bo Xilai was arrested, the, you know, the, mayor, the, the party secretary of Chongqing, what, eight years ago? Um, well, it was 2012, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, 2012, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if we'd been having this conversation then, uh, we might say things, you know, even, well, first of all, though Xi Jinping hadn't had been bold enough to, 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 to speak up in this way, but you, you might have had to be more confident about China's uh, smooth uh, political you know, uh, succession, etc. But I think since then, there have been so many different problems, you know, even you know, rumors of attempted you know, assassination or whatever. I have no idea. But what I'm saying is that our view today is very different. So if you, if you add into that what, what he's doing in terms of um, trying to lock in another term, I think uh, you, know, you may find some people who say, great, you know, he's a great guy. <laughs> um, but for, for the people who really make the country run, um, I think it's a problem. It's a problem for people who are ambitious, right? They, they, you know, they, they may, you know, because not only will he, could he be the leader for the, you know, beyond the next five years, he will be appointing key people and, um, you know, manipulating the leadership from his very strong role, you know, head of government, head of party, head of military, what, are, and, uh, and you know, the core at the core. So he's been put above the rest of the party, and that grates with other party people. Even if they like his control, you know, he's a control freak, right? If they like his control, uh, they may be disappointed that this means less, you know, less um, 
uh, there's room to play. And so I think this could lead to more factualism, not less. That's my view. So I think the political risk is the concern. Um, uh, you know, what he does on the economic front may be disappointing and not enough, but, you know, China will trundle along, I'm sure, and, and grow nicely. But I think that's the problem. Yes, gentlemen, now. Hello. Yes. Um, my name is Arturo Reynoso from the community. And um, just because you mentioned something about uh, a Leninist system, treating the people well and all of that, I'd like to know whether you have gone to the level of the regular people in China, as a lot of places, a lot of countries are attempting to look at China to see if there are some parts of the system that could be applied to them, and how the people feel, uh, whether they are in acceptance of, of this system, or whether they have different aspirations than the government has? Um, I don't think you can easily transplant systems to another place. Some people are saying that China would like to make you know, other countries you know, share their experience. Some Chinese have been saying this, share our experience with other countries. Um, you know, I don't think it works well in Africa. I mean, um, you know, the, the Chinese you know, demeanor, you know, the, Chinese, the way Chinese operate, the way they talk, the way they enjoy themselves, all those things don't go well with Africans, you know, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa anyway. Um, uh, and I think the, 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 the chances of, you know, of ch the Chinese model being very easily transplanted, I don't think it's that, that great. I mean, um, People say, you know, is, is there something we can learn from, um, I, had somebody, I went to a meeting where it was phrased in that, and I had to talk about that, and I could find a few things that you'd want to learn from, you know, learn from the Chinese, but it wouldn't be, you know, the complete, you know, the political system. I think they're just living with a legacy, I mean, it's a legacy of, of, of the past, and they're doing, you know, reasonably well in working through this, this painful reform process. Um, uh, other, other countries, you know, I said on, on a platform the other, last week, um, you know, Mexico, you know, went from a, a, a one-party pre-Easter pre state uh, to a two-party state. It took them about 80 years um, to have, you know, first of all, the pre, you know, broke up into two wings or three wings, what you can imagine, three wings. Uh, and then, uh, then another party, Pan, you know, came up and, uh, there, were, uh, other, and there were other parties. Uh, so that took, that was how Mexico evolved. But I... I I, I just don't think um, you know the, the people are ready to go and you know borrow uh, China's um, the, the complete control because this is you know, what we're talking about is you know the, I, I mentioned Confucianism, Leninism plus 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 all the technology. I mean this is this is you know the super control state of all time. I mean I, I, I can't stress it more incredibly. So. Uh, no, I, 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 I think it's a, it's a stretch, and I, I don't know anybody who really wants to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, my take is that the lessons you can draw are so very broad and very general as not to be that helpful, and that many of the things that uh, really have helped drive the growth in China are very particular and are not transferable. I mean, in, you know, one thing is just the demographics having right at the right time being able to rely on global demand with the export economy being being there at a particular time. Uh, you know, the growth, therefore, of a large middle class, which a lot of other countries don't have. And whatever we might think about the government, having a strong and competent government 
that could manage this process, which a lot of other developing countries don't have, you know, fall into even worse corruption, autocracy, and so on and so forth. So I think it's very difficult. What, what I think is, you know, the lessons that have been drawn about what works well in development, also very broad, uh, what Mike Spence in the group did with the Growth Commission, where essentially they pulled in, uh, you know, economists, development people from a number of the high-growth economies who basically put together a document of the 10, 11, 12 things uh, that, uh, you know, can be used and can work. And, and they're fairly sensible things, including education, particularly education for girls to stop the problems of intergenerational inequalities and, and so on and, and so forth. But uh, the gentleman here. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I'm an first year MPP student. Um, so do you have a name? Oh, Gabe <laughs> Walker. Thank you. Uh, I do. Uh, w one thing that you haven't mentioned um, is the, the economic necessity of, of boosting consumer demand um, over the next few decades. Um, and I wondered, just from your perspective, what does that look like? And especially from the perspective of well, um, small and medium yeah. enterprises? Well, I mean, SMEs fit into that. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's a question for all, all the economy. And, you know, there's a l everybody's been talking about going to a uh, consumer-led economy as opposed to, a, you know, economic stimulus sort of Keynesian sort of approach. And um, we're now into the third sort of stimulus, aren't we, or something in China? Or maybe the fourth. Well, last year was even bigger than the 08-09. Yeah. Right. So, so the, it goes on and on. But all the figures I've seen show that uh, consumer, the, you know, the, the, the consumer consumption and uh, the proportion of the economy, which is, uh, you know, what do you call, um, you know, non-manufacturing, just service economy, all of that is growing very, very steadily. Mm. And I, uh, you know, I, th I think that it, it, it will take a long time. As I mentioned, th there's a whole lot of China that's yet to, to have massive industrialization. And that will create lots of uh, um, a demand for consumer products. But again, you know, some of them will be low end. Even in Beijing, if you go out to these you know, surrounding sit, uh, towns under, underneath the municipality, you will find towns where th they don't sell you know, the top brands of anything. They only mm -hmm. sell the, 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 the lousy ones. And that's going to, so, you know, the, 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 so China is really almost like a number of different economies. I mean, I think that China wants to be like America. Now, be careful. I didn't don't quote me. <laughs> not, not in terms of democracy or, or pluralism or any of that, but I think China wants to be a consumer society, yeah. and I think it wants to move its industry overseas, which is polluting, and they want to become consumers and you know, m have most of the economy like that. That's going to take a long, long time. But I do think um, the signs are quite good. And the reason consumerism can, can succeed is that you have to have an economic uh, safety net, um, you know, whether it's education. I mean, Chinese uh, save more than any nation in the world, right? The people, ordinary people. And that is because uh, education, you often need to pay for education, even under the state system. Healthcare, um, you need to save for that because it doesn't cover everything, although it's getting better, and that's releasing more money. Uh, and then there's, you know, looking after your, your parents, you know, elderly parents, uh, putting them in some sort of managed help, uh, you know, help, whatever. Housing. Uh, yeah. Housing. Yeah. 
housing, housing. yes, yeah. yes, and then housing, yes. So, you know, people, you know, they, they save heavily and they, 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 they're, they're very conservative about the, a rainy day. But what I'm hearing is that, you know, consumer um, expenditure, expenditure on credit cards and debt, you know, and all sorts of debt is rising. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want a Chinese to look like America in that sense, that you know, all that debt is piled up because it's, it's a horror story. Um, but China is moving in that direction. I think the younger, gen the younger generation of Chinese looks, so their spending habits very different from the previous generation. Right, right. Um, but they, they remember. Look a lot more like they the don't. West. They don't remember the Great Famine when 35 million people died. They don't remember those things. They weren't there. I mean, sorry. They they did. They weren't born then, and so they they don't understand. You know, when I was in Beijing to study, um, they said, um, spend. You know, the, the, the party put out these posters on the wall saying, "Spend a frugal New Year." You know, <laughs> and I, I know. But I I thought that was. I, at the time, I was sort of a bit lefty, and uh, I thought that was really good. Yeah. And looking back on it, it's just that, that perpetual poverty that they were living in. You know, why should I have a, have a you know, now it's da chi da you know, it's eat, <laughs> drink and eat a lot, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but if you're in a state-owned company the last three years, you, I mean, talk about uh, beefs that people are un unhappy with. The party has said you may not have lavish or even moderately lavish um, New Year parties for your for your staff. Why not? They earn their money. They should be able to, like, to use to spend it. But the state and the party have told them you can't do that. Mm. But even so, people get you know there's mass, there's massive. They, you know you know the Chinese uh, consumer economy is quite interesting. Um, it's it's. Well, I think when we were in China, Paul, probably the first two things we learned in the in the store was mayola and maiwanda. <laughs> we don't have it, or we just sold out. Right. Well. <laughs> Um, when I'm in when I'm in China, I, I still play games with people. And they, when you know, I say, "Do you have anything?" And they say, "No." I say, "Is that that you mayo? We, you just don't have it. You run out of it, or is it the great socialist mayo?" <laughs> because you know, there were shortages, and things you know, came and came and went. There were yeah, certain yeah, fruits yeah. came for one week, and they weren't there next week. Now you know, it's everything. Stuff brought in from Laos, from South China, from all over. All fruits you could want. I mean, there's, it's it's a pretty rich life now. Um, but yeah, just uh, speaking back to the SMEs, I think e-commerce, in light of the booming consumer demand, e-commerce is playing a big role in facilitating you know potential entrepreneurs. Anyone can open a shop on Taobao, Ali, AliExpress, and you can export through AliExpress. Right. So that's creating a lot of opportunities um, because of the rising urban consumer demand. It's not just that demand, they're demanding more, they're demanding higher and higher quality. I think that's an important engine for quality upgrading. And we see that for the auto industry. So uh, we're doing a research where we find that, we see that the private auto firms are catching up in terms of hundreds of quality attributes with the JVs, with the SOEs, and partly because of the rising local local income. People, people don't want, you know, there's this caricature of China that everybody wants fake things, right, that, like fake handbags. And foreigners go there and still find some fake handbags. Um, but well actually... We go there to buy the fake yeah. things. <laughs> but the, chi the, Chinese, yeah, the Chinese want, they know, but, you know, I was working for HP, right, and, um, and you know, the, we were devising a strategy for dealing with uh, theft, intellectual property theft in China, which is essentially their, their ink cassettes, which were being pirated. Uh -huh. and, and so, you know, we went out looking, at, looking through the stores, and, you know, there were, there were two types of pirated stuff. One was the, the real stuff, then there was the 
very bad stuff. And then there was, oh, so if you said, have we got anything a bit better? Oh, yeah, we've got another one. Even, um, Different but, places. But people, you know, people are smart. I mean, um, Microsoft you know, had a brilliant campaign trying to stop pirating of their software. Basically, they, sh they showed, showed your computer covered with all sorts of creepy animals eating it away. Yeah. And it was a brilliant thing. And, you know, there's some truth to that. So, um, you, know, so you, know, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, how many times have you bought a, a, a pirated DVD in China and found out that there's somebody walking across oh, the yeah. screen? I mean, you know, I mean, it's a disappointment. So Chinese are really going for quality, as you say. And they, the, 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 there's so many misconceptions. And, uh, and, and China's moving up so fast. Mm -hmm. And the biggest, you know, they're leapfrogging credit cards like crazy and going straight to you know, the, their version of PayPal. And, you know, Tencent and Alibaba have the most sophisticated payment systems anywhere in the world, and they cover a thousand more apps than anybody else who has those sort of platforms. So, I mean, this, as you say, this is driving uh, consumerism yeah. big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, a friend of mine, uh, talking about the piracy uh, some years ago, a friend of mine who was uh, in charge of Sikkim's paints in China, they discovered that a Chinese group in Hunan were completely copying their paints, had the exactly the same tin, except the one thing on it was the L was printed the wrong, wrong way around. The and wrong that's way. how they found it. But, but they discovered the quality of the paint was extraordinarily good. Mm. So they went and found the company. And bought it. And they bought it. Absolutely. <laughs> and they flipped the L round the right way, and they were happy. Well, that's what you want. You want the distribution network, with, you know, <laughs> local, local oh, production. That's what they had, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, we're near the bewitching hour, but maybe we have one last question ah. over here. The, the beard. We like beards. Thank you. My name's James, and I'm a visitor. Um, th there's a kind of parallel paradox that I'm thinking about, which is the paradox of being, not being t too self-congratulatory about it under current circumstances, but that we in the West, Americans, Brits, care about democratic institutions, but we have a, a manifestly undemocratic state-run uh, system in China that's getting even more authoritarian, seemingly, from current uh, news. So, and you talked about how the British government are eager to benefit from, economically, from the relationship with China. So, how much should we care about whether or not China is a democratic, is, mainly democratic or moving in a democratic direction, and how much should we just ignore that and say, oh, we can all benefit from an economic relationship and uh, sort of ignore that? Or should we expect our governments to do better in that regard? Well, you're, you're talking about the story of my life, really, aren't you? Um, uh, you know, living, going through Tiananmen incident, you know, and, and, and all that, and still having to go in and talk to Chinese officials. And I, I, first of all, I don't think we can impose our system on them. Um, they laugh at us because I think we're very dysfunctional. I think we're, we're streets ahead in, in the press, in, in the judiciary, and even in government. So, uh, overall, so, um, so I, yeah, I, I um, I'm not sure that um, we, we should be trying to uh, um, impose our system on them at all. But, so I, but I do think engagement is the real way to go. See, in the early, just after the revolution in, 19, in the 50s, 
U.S. tried containment. You know, there was rollback. They didn't want to do that in the end. There was containment, and then there was engagement all the way through the last 20 years, engagement, con constructive engagement, you know that term. And now, if you listen to F um, Ray, FBI Director um, Ray, um, yeah, Ray and other officials in the U.S. government, they have said, they said the other day that the two greatest threats to America are not Russia and China, but China and Russia in that order. Uh, and, it, and it's scary because it's, you know, and today you know the stock market dove because, dived or dove, whatever, because of uh, China, uh, U.S. putting um, extra tariffs on uh, alu aluminium and, and, and steel. Um, so, you know, I think that we're crazy not to engage with China, particularly on, like, environmental technology. You know, we have a big market and big needs, and China is, you know, pioneering new mobility systems, you know, electric vehicles and a, a new battery technology. Uh, you know, um, U.S. is already partnering on thorium salt technology, but that's kept very secret by the State Department. They won't talk about it to me, but it's actually happening. In fact, we lent them the, uh, that technology from the Oak, Oak Ridge uh, Laboratory. Um, but we, we should be engaging with them on all these fronts. They were under Obama. You know, there was a construct, there was an engagement, the economic, you know, dialogue, and it had a big track on environmental everything. And there were, I mean, it was working on it. You know, it was very impressive. The private enterprise was involved, and uh, in today's climate, all those things are just gone dead. My my knowledge is that that um, economic dialogue, which was so powerful in the last ten years, has just it's just been suspended. And I think that's a tremendous uh, a problem. And w you know, it's a great loss to America. And, uh, um, I don't like Britain's you know, supine posture towards China. I think that's, that is really ridiculous. I, I think I've been telling friends in Britain they should be asking for much more from the Chinese in return for Chinese market access on nuclear or railway or whatever. But uh, anyway. yeah, my, my take is uh, I don't think the Chinese government respects you if you roll over. No. I mean, so I think Britain's yeah. reaction is just say, okay, push you and push you a bit more. And, uh, Lie back and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, if, um, please uh, join me in thanking Paul and Jay for uh, this discussion. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.